Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast where two licensed professional counselors and approved EMDR consultants discuss the latest research and resources for trauma treatment and EMDR therapy. Hey everyone, welcome back to Notice That, our EMDR podcast. We're here in studio with Melissa and I. And we've got a great episode planned. We're going to start talking about how to integrate EMDR therapy into your practice. So this is really geared towards those of you who are more newly trained with EMDR therapy and exploring how do we integrate this into either an agency life, private practice, um, just considering all of those things. Mm -hmm. So we'll start out, uh, we're going to kind of cover all of the different areas, career fields, and looking at how to integrate those and unique pieces to that. So we'll start here today talking about agency integration. That can be kind of a unique situation if you are part of an agency that has specific structure in place, um, anywhere from the way referrals come in, the intake process, the things you cover in therapy, um, completing a client, and how do we start to utilize this resource of EMDR therapy to work with those clients. Melissa, do you specifically have any thoughts or experience in trying to bring that into agency life? Yeah, I think one of the main considerations is what your role is in the agency. So there is a a very big difference if you are um, a primary therapist that's working directly with clients versus if you have a, a supervisory position Um, When I very first started, I was trained along with my supervisor, which was really phenomenal Um, because then when it was time for us to do supervision, she, you know, knows what I'm talking about. But there are situations where you may be a therapist that is trained in EMDR, but there's not a supervisor available to you. Um, And so before you start integrating it with clients, you need to check in with your supervisor and uh, really make sure, number one, that they're comfortable with you using that modality because they have to be your supervisor um, in that context. One of the workarounds is um, I have talked to agencies where if there's not a supervisor available as part of the agency that is trained in EMDR, Um, that they will sometimes contract with someone outside to provide supervision specifically for those cases or um, to provide consultation specifically for those cases. So that's just something to keep in mind as you're integrating is if I have a supervisor, are they EMDR trained or at least EMDR informed enough to provide supervision on those cases? Yes, that is so important. And Hopefully you have that support before you go into taking your training, but maybe you've been trained and then you've gotten a position with a new agency, Mm -hmm. but to really um, be able to advocate for the practice itself, the approach within the staff, within the administration, so they're well informed of what you're doing and how the agency can support the client in that. So we'll talk about that a little more when we discuss residential, but if it's um, an agency setup where that client is having Um, contact interaction with other staff members like case managers, um, probation officers. Yes, absolutely. That everybody understands and is sensitive to the type of therapeutic work this client is going through, ways they can support them, um, things they might need to be aware of Mm -hmm. in working with them. 
And so specifically, as Melissa, you were mentioning, having someone who can you can consult with with EMDR, a lot of times when you get out of your basic training, you have your consultation that comes with that. But past that, um, maybe you pursue certification and have consultation or you just find a consultant to touch base with if you don't have anyone within your agency who is well-informed and experienced with EMDR. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so another point is about what is their other, you know, required work if they if they are mandated into whatever program it is in the agency. That's very different than if they are coming in of their own accord. Um, and so really making sure that if they do have requirements as part of the program, that when they begin EMDR therapy, that everybody on their team or everybody that uh, is influencing those decisions is aware that they are beginning uh, EMDR reprocessing and really looking at the program to evaluate if maybe the expectations need to shift in other places while they're doing that work. Um, whether it be a, a reduction in the hours required, a reduction in if there's homework or things like that, to really make sure that we're supporting them um, to be able to focus on on that EMDR work when they're doing it. And if there's that flexibility isn't allowed within their program for us to be flexible as the EMDR therapist and mindful of what we're moving into, what targets, um, trauma targets we're moving into, or do we stay more in, in resourcing, That's right. but adapting what we do with them to support the program that they are a part of if the program doesn't have the flexibility to support their trauma work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the other thing that uh, will eventually talk more about in a in a separate episode but right here it is a consideration of the length of the program right so if we're doing um you know a year-long program that's a totally different experience than if they're there for a couple of weeks so really making sure that as we're creating their emdr treatment plan we're evaluating how long we're going to be able to work with them um, and making sure that we're doing an appropriate amount of work and appropriate kinds of work um, for their their time period Yeah, the length of the program, the length of sessions available. Mm -hmm. Sometimes within an agency, it's limited. You have shorter sessions or you may have more flexibility to have longer sessions. Mm -hmm. But all of that um, gets into how do we support the client and the work they're doing and make sure that we're being mindful and wise in what we're approaching. I think that transitions well into some of the residential considerations just as part of a program whether you're you know, looking at specific considerations for residential, um, an intensive outpatient, a less intensive outpatient, it's always important for us to be communicating with our clients um, and just being really aware of where it is that they're at and making sure we're not um, exceeding their comfort or their, their ability to do the trauma work within that structure. So within residential, there's some perks to that. Um, They're in a safe environment. They are surrounded by staff, um, hopefully staff that are informed and aware of EMDR and can support them in that. So if you're looking at, is this a good time to proceed with trauma reprocessing, there are those benefits there. There's also some, you know, downfalls or considerations to keep in mind, and that's Are they in there working on something, um, let's say, for instance, a substance abuse treatment center residential or eating disorder? Um, Are they needing to get more regulated before they're ready to go into trauma reprocessing? Mm -hmm. How long are they staying in that residential? Could they potentially leave if they get too triggered? 
So we want to weigh these pros and cons to moving forward with active trauma reprocessing in a residential setting um, and maybe determine, do we need to stay in resource development and installation and really give them tools to regulate and strengthen their resources? And then as they go and shift over into a more long-term outpatient center care, they could then start into their trauma reprocessing. Yeah, and Jen, you brought up a a point that I want to really highlight because I find that it's super important in both, um, well, in all of these settings is the idea of a team approach when it comes to trauma reprocessing. If our clients are going to be interacting with anybody other than ourselves while they are in treatment, um, it is incredibly important that those uh, other clinicians or um, other staff are really, really well informed about what EMDR is. And one of the really interesting questions that I have talked to a lot of people about is whether or not it is okay to do a demonstration on other clinicians or other staff in order to help them understand what EMDR really is. Um, so this is a one of those kind of ethical sticky things. So all I'm going to do is kind of share some things to consider without going out on the limb and saying, here's what I think you should do. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will say that there are some aspects of EMDR that are pretty safe to do as a demonstration um, that really does not cross any ethical boundaries. So things like um, taking people through the calm, safe place process or the container creation process um, with bilateral stimulation so that they can at least have an idea of what does this feel like and, and what is the client experiencing just sort of in this setting and what does this machine do if we have technology um, that we use. Um, so at least the staff is familiar with what the, the clients are saying if they're referencing those things. Um, I have definitely, you know, know of clinicians and have experienced clinicians that will do a, a float back for other therapists to help them understand what that process can be like, or even reprocess a small target so that they really understand um, what EMDR is and what it feels like. Because what I have found is that if the whole team has personally experienced EMDR, even to a small degree, the empathy and the support that they're able to give is much, much different and much, much better. So just a a consideration as you're trying to build that team approach and really make sure that everybody is informed about um, what EMDR is and what it feels like is whether or not there is a way for you to include an experiential piece in that. And as you're assessing that, knowing that whatever we're demonstrating with them, even like the resourcing is kind of a safe zone, as you were mentioning, Mm -hmm. that's those positive experiences. When we get into finding a target, um, as most of you have been trained in EMDR, uh, maybe experiencing that piece even in your training, we never quite know what it could open up. Mm -hmm. So that's a big consideration to keep in the back of your mind. You may think you're starting to target something small or moving into something that could be safe or that, you know, a float back might be fairly simple, but it could open something up. So being in a place where you have, um, before starting that, have a place to kind of refer them to a resource that if something was to open up, or even if they decided, hey, this is really great stuff, I think I, I want to move forward in this myself, yes. mm-hmm. some good resources to direct them to, mm-hmm. uh, but just kind of cautiously moving into that if the demonstration piece or the experiential piece is what you decide to do. Mm-hmm. 
With um, a few other things just with residential, and, and really this is kind of the same with just any agency, outpatient or residential, the consent to treat piece can be unique. Um, we have a specific consent to treat with EMDR therapy that oftentimes basic training trainers will provide for you as an example. Um, when it comes to an agency, before you provide additional documentation, of course you want that approved with your administration, and you could integrate that into the consent to treat that already exists. So have them adapt or modify that. This is really similar for private practice too, but adapt the existing consent to treat to include the pieces of EMDR with that. You could maintain a separate consent to treat. Um, Some therapists choose to do a verbal consent to treat with EMDR specifically, um, and they just have their consent to treat kind of generalized to cover any therapeutic approach that you utilize. So if it's CBT or um, EMDR therapy, it can cover all of that. And then you verbally discuss the EMDR with them and get their consent to move forward with that. So I think that's that's a question I get often is, how do I use this consent to treat with my agency who already has one? And I encourage everybody to take that to administration and make sure they make that decision to cover whatever legal um, mm-hmm. ramifications that could come of that. Mm-hmm. So I think another important piece that we should touch on is um, in that agency life, in that that program, um, Melissa, you started to talk about it, but there's other requirements, other things that must be completed. And I, I think often of substance abuse treatment because that's where my experience lies, but there's step work or relapse prevention plans, continuing care plans. That's a lot to to balance and to carry as an EMDR therapist that's trying to get into trauma work um, in addition to these requirements that are part of the program. And so a really nice option, I mean, there's there's some specific things to be mindful of in doing that, but as if there can be an individual therapist who covers the program requirements or maybe a more traditional talk therapy approach, and then you could be a paired partnership that provides the EMDR therapy for the client. And it's a it's a joint process and you kind of work together in that. There needs to be a lot of communication to make mm-hmm. that successful. That could be within an agency, that could be even in private practice where someone refers a client to you just for the trauma work while they continue working with them on other things. Mm-hmm. Melissa, have you had any experience in that? Yes. Um when I worked with an agency, I was the EMDR therapist for the program. And I had my own caseload and was both the primary therapist and the EMDR therapist for those people, but then had several other people where EMDR was the only thing I was doing. Um, and it worked better than I expected it to. Um, in some ways, it is really nice to have some division there so that when when they're focused on program requirements, um, Things like, you know, have I attended the groups that I'm supposed to um, and things like that, they're they're in a different mindset. And when they come in to do EMDR, the level of uh, vulnerability and openness and safety and all of that that has to be there 
um, it, it is kind of nice to have that separation. When I was in both roles as part of a, um, a substance abuse program that had a legal element to it, I sometimes found it challenging to, on one hand, um, be, you know, helping the clients with accountability for getting all of these things done and talking to them about their probation officer's frustrations with them and then say, and now let's process right. your, uh, you know, difficult traumas of your life. So I actually, in that setting at least, I really enjoyed being able to not have the responsibilities of the primary therapist and be able to focus in um, just on EMDR. I think a uh, another important consideration, whichever role you're in, um, and helping the agency understand where EMDR needs to fit into that puzzle of treatment um, is considering the stages of change and whether this client is actually at a place where they can engage with EMDR the way they really need to. EMDR does not work if there is resistance. It cannot uh, because of the nature of it. And so making sure that if we are part of an agency, this is not something that we do when a client refuses to do other things um, or when a client is struggling to engage in all these other areas where we're going to send them to EMDR as a last ditch effort. It does not work in that context. I definitely had some experiences where, um, you know, other clinicians or probation officers assumed that I could help them along in the process by doing EMDR. And that produced quite a bit of frustration because if they are not at that point in their uh, willingness and, um, you know, in just their process, that creates problems. So I don't know if you've experienced that, Jen, but that was definitely something that I found we had to consider is where are they in their change process? And EMDR needs to absolutely be done um, in the action phase. If they are not yet there, it's not going to work. Absolutely. Just just like any other therapeutic approach, if a client doesn't want to be there, mm-hmm. they're not ready to talk about their trauma. They don't they're not ready to be in therapy. It's not, it's not a magical tool. Yeah. Um, but there are steps that we can take if they're not ready, similar to other therapy of motivational interviewing, um, that can work them into furthering themselves in those stages of change. We can integrate that with EMDR. That Mm -hmm. could be part of the preparation resourcing phase. So we're, you know, technically still you know utilizing EMDR but we're doing talk therapy sessions on with motivational interviewing and talking to them about their stages of change or um, helping motivate them in that process there's also ways that you could potentially target whatever it is that's um, making them resistant to the process so exploring a belief that may be there that says, I can't handle it or I'm incapable or a secondary gain issue. Yes. Mm-hmm. I don't deserve to feel better. Mm-hmm. Something like that and start exploring it on that level and targeting that and seeing if um, progress can happen. But it, it's still the same. If they're resistant and they don't want to be there, they're mandated to be into therapy and mm-hmm. they come in with the mindset, I'm going to sit here and kind of buy some time and get to the end of the session and move on, EMDR won't have any different effect than any right. other approach. Right. As we kind of cover all of those considerations with agency, residential, outpatient, looking at private practice and integrating it into this new this approach into your private practice, one wonderful thing about that is just the flexibility. Um, it's it's 
you don't have the specific structure you're trying to mold it into. So you may have done things a certain way in your private practice before, and now there's this um, new approach you want to use. You've got more flexibility to adapt to that. And so just kind of considering, is this something you want to present as your primary approach? Um, Is it something you want to structure your private practice to kind of lend to what you're doing with EMDR? Or, you know, do you have a system that's put in place and you want to figure out where to put it? Myself personally, in private practice, I I view everything from the framework of um, the the eight-phase protocol and EMDR therapy. And so whatever I'm doing is either preparation and resourcing, history-taking, um, assessment and reprocessing. So that's kind of the way I've done it. Not everybody does it that way, but I think that anything that we use, um, whether it's another therapeutic approach or it's some talk therapy sessions to develop rapport or just let the clients kind of come through and verbally process what their week has been, I try to still view it with the same mindset of the um, adaptive information processing model with um, we're preparing and resourcing to get into doing the trauma work because that's where the real change is going to happen. How did you, when in your private practice, how did you structure that? I think that mine kind of slowly evolved over time. And where I have landed is in our, in our office, we um, primarily, we treat trauma. That's what we do. Uh, I say that because I think that 90% of the time, the root issue is trauma. (laughs) Um, So we call ourselves a a trauma um, treatment facility. And what the language that I use is that EMDR is our primary and preferred modality. And what I mean by that is in any situation that we can, we're going to use EMDR, we're going to use it first, because uh, we really believe that it is the most effective, um, both as far as time is concerned and also uh, as far as results are concerned. Um, and usually when I frame it that way to clients, they're on board with it really quickly. However, there are some situations where it is either um, inappropriate or there is client resistance. And so we still use other modalities. We still make sure that all of our clinicians are comfortable with other modalities um, because having, you know, one tool to use is just not wise in general. Um, So a really simple example is, you know, if I've been doing EMDR with someone and then they're pregnant and they have a complicated pregnancy, well, we're not going to do EMDR. So I'm not going to suspend therapy with them um, for those nine months. And so having other modalities is, is incredibly important. And most of us do. And so really knowing that it's okay to say, I am primarily an EMDR therapist and I have these other options if I need them. Um, so in all of our literature and on our website, uh, that's how it's phrased. This is our primary and preferred modality. And then here's the other things that we use either if EMDR is not an option or as a support to EMDR. Because like you mentioned, Jen, there's going to be weeks where we are doing talk therapy and we're using other modalities for one reason or another. Um, And so I see those as supports to um, the primary work that we're doing, which is EMDR work. Um, In private practice, I think that the, the flexibility that we have um, is also we have to consider the marketing aspect, right? Because when we, um, you know, take the leap into private practice, we're suddenly we're just on our own with no uh, financial covering. If this doesn't go well, we're very, very conscious of trying to get clients in our door. 
Um, and one thing that I think is really important to consider is that if we're going to have success and longevity in private practice is not only are we getting people in our door, but we want to make sure that we're getting the clients that we're really wanting to work with because we do our best work with the clients that we click with, that, that we're really the right match for. And the best, the absolute best referral source that we have is satisfied clients. So if we're doing our best work with this group of people, they're going to go out and tell their friends and family. And that is our best marketing tool, hands down. And so if you if you really click with EMDR as a modality, I would say don't be afraid of pigeonholing yourself, of really saying, this is what I do. This is why I do it. I love EMDR. I get excited about it. I get passionate about it. And these are the people that I want to work with, right? This is the kind of work that I want to do. And what I have actually found watching people attempt to start private practice, successfully start private practice, and a whole lot of stuff in between, um, is that people that uh, are a little bit afraid of not having referrals tend to try to be too broad, right? They, they want to have a list of 19 specialties, which means this is not your specialty. It's just a list of 19 things that you can do. Um, and so I really actually encourage people to shorten your list and say, this is my thing, right? To view yourself as a specialist, to market yourself as a specialist. And if EMDR is going to be one of your specialties, to really go all in on it as much as you can and market yourself that way. And what I found is, uh, you know, both personally and watching other people is that when you do that, um, I think that it actually helps get referrals because you create a reputation for this particular thing. And so when people encounter that issue, they think of you, right? Um, and so that's just kind of my take on how to market yourself as an EMDR therapist and why that can be so important. I love the balance that you share there between having resources and tools and knowing other approaches, being willing to use it, not being resistant to just only one thing, but keeping a focus. Mm-hmm. And then you can you can expand upon that. You can become an expert in that area and you become known for that. You, right. That reputation piece, um, you get your name becomes associated with that approach mm-hmm. and the positive results that come from it. And in marketing that, um, I think a, a key piece when I think about marketing EMDR therapy is kind of the difference in marketing. I'm EMDR trained and I'm EMDR certified. That's right. And I think that's a newer movement that's mm-hmm. happening where the really the re- reputation respect is, is more so coming with that certified piece because there's so much additional consultation training that's involved in that. That's the difference between saying I took a really long training course um, But as we all know, or I know I connect with still feeling like a fish out of water Mm -hmm. after that basic training, Um, but saying I'm certified now and being able to market that piece and and saying I've I've gone that extra effort to really feel confident and be a strong therapist in that area. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at marketing, um, that may be something you consider in private practice is pursuing certification um, in your area or somewhere to have that piece that you can market as well. One, one of the other things that I've really gotten excited about and, you know, watching other clinicians do is going even further with specialization with EMDR and beginning to market yourself as I do EMDR for uh, performance anxiety, right? This, this is my niche. This is my thing. I do EMDR for attunement and attachment issues, which 
that's just cool stuff. And we're going to do an episode about that. Um, as we get more and more research about EMDR, right, as people are, you know, out there doing it and practicing it, uh, what we're finding is that we take that basic protocol and we tweak it slightly, or sometimes we have whole new protocols that come along that really help us specialize with these particular issues and particular populations, EMDR with addiction, right there. That's a whole thing. So really, um, you know, fine tuning, what do I want my specialization to be? When people hear this issue, I want them to think of my name, right? Um, and for me, it just kind of developed into EMDR and DID and uh, dissociative identity disorder. And that's a specialization that um, has its own set of skills that we really have to develop. And so, uh, Jen, you mentioned that certification piece. If you're considering certification and, you know, what is that going to do for me besides the, um, you know, building reputation and things like that and being able to say, hey, I'm certified, is that's the time where you really kind of figure out beyond just trauma, right, beyond the um, what the basic protocol can do, that's the, the time where you really investigate what those specializations can be, right? Take some advanced training, read some books, have several hours worth of consultation um, about those particular clients and the subtleties of working with them. And that's really where uh, I think that an EMDR practice can really take off and blossom. And more importantly, let you as the therapist really do what you want to be doing and, and work with the clients that you serve the best, that you connect with the best, because that's where we do our best work. Yeah, and I think as, as this approach grows more and more, which we hope it does, and it's exciting to see more and more therapists get trained because it's bringing help to our clients, um, to have a niche like that is going to be so necessary. And there's so mm-hmm. many advanced trainings out there and adapted protocols that you could become an expert in in that where now maybe several therapists practice EMDR in your in your community but you are now an EMDR therapist that practices it in a certain specific mm-hmm. targeted population. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then same balancing that of being able to work with other clients or disorders, but having your specialty. Yeah. Yeah. One last thing with the private practice. Um, and I, I don't know that I have a strong opinion on this, but just want to present this as a, an idea or concept that has been thrown out to me by other therapists when bringing it into private practice, is there a difference with the rate that you charge your clients because oh. it's a specialty mm-hmm. service? So the experience that I have had um, in private practice, but kind of part of a group, their their approach is, you know, it's a specialty service, so we charge a higher rate than for a non-specialty service. And having been a part of that and kind of seeing how that works out, there's some benefits to that. You know, you do put in a lot of personal finances. There's a lot of personal Mm -hmm. investment into becoming trained and certified and advanced trainings. And so I understand that piece of, okay, it's um, you can charge at a higher rate. The other piece to that, though, is as a therapist who primarily just practices that, whether or not we are in two to three months of preparation and resourcing of talk therapy and learning other tools and techniques, or we're doing play therapy or art therapy or whatever it might be, uh, in my mind, it's still EMDR therapy framework. Right. And so for myself, I have a hard time kind of delineating between 
when is it and when is it not? Right. And then is it that only mean, like, when we're using bilateral stimulation right. that costs more? <laughs> right. And so uh, some therapists may not, or some clients may not even realize we're doing. It's not because it's in my mind. This is in the framework because this is where we're getting to. Right. Um, and so it's gotten a little bit like foggy there, mm. but it's just something to throw out there to consider and kind of weigh the pros and cons mm-hmm. of each each side of that. That's interesting. I think one thing that because because it's so difficult to say, you know, this is EMDR and this is not EMDR, that if you if you work in a team setting and they want to charge a higher rate for EMDR, I think it would be a good idea to say the rate is for this therapist, not for the service, right? Because this person has had this advanced training and the specialization to work with this person is a higher rate. Because otherwise, I can definitely feel that if, well, if we didn't do bilateral stimulation today, then I feel bad for charging them that extra $15, $20. And are they thinking about that too? Like we didn't actually do the real thing. So why am I having to pay this? So I think it would be important to to frame it up front as to do work with this person. You're going to have a higher rate because of their specialty um, so that you don't have that kind of background concern right. of we didn't do the thing today. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. In private practice, I don't you know, I don't differentiate because I move in and out of EMDR so fluidly. It's just all the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that one of the other uh, breakpoints is the experience level. Um, so we're seeing a lot of movement, um, at least in certain states, towards Medicaid and other insurance companies paying a higher rate for EMDR, which is wonderful because, like you said, there is a lot of investment there financially for us. Um, what I am noticing is that there is often a higher price point if you are certified, not necessarily just trained, um, which can be another reason to go ahead and do certification. Um, but that also seems to be, you know, in an agency setting, that's where some of the break is as well, is if they have certification, then the price goes up a little bit. If they have X number of years of experience, the price goes up a little bit. So if you're in private practice, I think that that would be a consideration as a group as well, is to do it by certification and experience level, um, because that seems fair, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just for those of you who have just gotten trained in EMDR to recognize this as a big investment for yourself, mm-hmm. and it is a specialty focus. And so we want to obviously treat our clients fairly, but to be able to market yourself to your community um, and, I guess, price yourself at a point that really honors what you've put into it as well. That's right. Mm -hmm. Any other thoughts, Melissa, that you have on just integrating it into your practice, regardless of the setting? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we're going to talk about this in a separate session, but there is also a lot of information and research coming out about an intensive model. Um, And so I think we're going to do a separate episode about that, which is something that we're developing in my my practice as well. And it's really promising, and it's a whole lot of work, but also incredibly effective. Um, So that's another consideration is uh, really developing a a model that lets us get in there and do several hours worth of the MDR work. Um, So if you guys have that possibility in your setting um, and in your practice, that is something to investigate and consider. Um, and yeah, I'm pretty excited about it because you can get a whole lot of, you know, done in a really short amount of time. So yes. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, well, we just encourage you guys to send us an email, um, message us on our Facebook page, any questions or thoughts, maybe even personal experiences you guys have with integrating EMDR into your practices. Uh, We'd love to hear from you all. We thank you for joining us on this episode today, and we hope that you've heard something that can help you help your clients. That's right. See you guys next time. Thanks for listening to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. We hope something you've heard today will help you help your clients. Find our latest episode and more on our Facebook page or on our website, emdr-podcast.com. And don't forget to add us to your RSS feed or follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher so that you don't miss an episode. Please email questions and comments to noticethat at emdr-podcast.com. From all of us here at Notice That, see you next time.